0: doing well. My name is Anahita Sen and I'm a co-facilitator of the MA a Stories YouTube podcast, which is brought to you by 5th Grown Business Insights. Welcome to Season 3. The theme of this season is culture and its impact on M&A integration. Culture is one of the biggest challenges that face an M&A integration, and this challenge couldn't get any bigger as more companies are pursuing MA a based on people and culture. That is why it is important to understand, internalize, respect, and develop a clear plan of action on how to handle culture in M&A. In this season, we will be interviewing industry leaders from across the globe to hear their stories on how they address culture in an M&A integration. So here we go with today's episode. Welcome to another
1: episode of M&A Stories. And as you know, the theme of this season is culture. Today, we are being joined by one of the industry experts, especially when it comes to HR and culture. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me a pleasure to welcome Clint Kendrick. Hey Clint, it's good to see you again. And this time I believe you are in Australia. Yes, sir.
2: Glad to be joining you. And yeah, it's uh, uh, here down under
1: for a little bit of holiday and a little bit of fun. Wonderful, wonderful. For our audience, why don't we start with a brief introduction? Fantastic. Well, again, thanks so much for inviting
2: me. Yeah, my name is Clint Kendrick, and I am a pretty experienced HR M&A practitioner. I've worked on an excess of 110 deals. Uh, it's probably closer to 125, but I stopped counting at some point. Um, and those have ranged from two-person deals to multiple thousands of people in multiple sectors and segments. I've uh, led practices to a number of Fortune 500 companies. I lead an HR M&A Roundtable, and I've also written a couple of books on M&A topics. It's obviously an area that I'm very, very passionate about, not just because this is what I do for a living now, but I was that acquired employee once, Irvon, very early in my career. And a couple of times, you know, those went very smoothly. And then a couple of times uh, I chose not to go forward or they chose not to have me go forward. And that made a huge difference for my family. So it's an area that I'm very passionate about. It's not just the effect on companies, but the effect on employees.
1: Absolutely. And I probably do not know anybody else who's as passionate about you, uh, about when it comes to HR in MA, you know, especially with your HR MA and roundtable and the way people look up to you. Uh, so it's good to have you as a guest today. Thank you. Our topic today, as you know, is culture. And I've spoken to various people on this topic, and I still am trying to figure out what exactly is the definition of culture. So what's your definition of culture? Yeah, boy, there are a lot of definitions of culture out there. And I think
2: that as a pragmatist, culture boils down to how we behave, how we act in organizations. So my shorthand for culture is how people get work done in an organization. I've heard a lot of folks say that culture is how things get done, but I think you have to have the people element. It really is about how people get things done. And sometimes we choose to have technology help or we choose to have processes help, but at the end of the day, you know what links a, an organization together, what links a culture together are the people.
1: Right, so when you talk about culture, right. Um... There's also this national culture, there's this department culture, there's culture of the industry. Um, how, how, how do all of these pieces fit together?
2: Sure. So, I mean, culture is a big question, right? There's so many different layers. And I think that's one of the reasons we have a challenge getting our arms around it in the MA context. You know, we've got national culture in uh, most countries, there are different regional cultures. Even inside the same firm, you can have what I call micro cultures. There's often a difference in the microculture at the executive level and the microculture at the working level. And so in order for us to really avoid having culture become this thing that's too big to take on, um, we really have to dig into it and look at it as uh, really how people are getting things done in the organization. How are they getting the key and critical work that's required for that organization to run, for that deal to have value extracted? that's where we have to focus. Um, sometimes in the past, when, when culture was not as much of a hot topic or with leaders who, you know, see culture as sort of the, you know, fluffy bunnies, rainbows, bows and unicorns type of, <laughs> of uh, you know, business concept, I'll actually change the words and refer to it as operational readiness. And right. if you think about it that way, Right. How we operate is going to vary from place to place or from group to group. How your warehouse operates is going to look different than how your back office operates. But we've got to bring it down to what's critical in the business, whether that's a national overlay or a regional
1: overlay or a, you know, a workforce overlay. Right. Why is it such a big deal when it comes to M&A and especially integration? Yeah. Well, so I think there's a few things, Irvon. You know, it's really difficult for us to
2: quantify culture. I've seen a lot of great assessments out there that that are really trying to get at that question, but I don't know that we will ever get to a point where culture becomes, you know, 10 items on a spreadsheet uh, to really do a proper look at it. So it's really easy for us to ignore culture as we dig into some of the other important things that we need to do an acquisition. You know, does it make financial sense? Uh, being usually the big question that we want to ask. And unfortunately, because we ignore culture, we ignore uh, how things get done in the organization, how people work to achieve the mission of the company, uh, we end up with a lot of surprises. Uh, you know, the way that I look at it is, is a lot like buying a home, right? Buying a company sure. is a lot like buying a house. And if I don't do a very thorough home inspection, then I can get surprised. Um, I purchased a home in the Seattle area many years ago, and, uh, you know, the electrical work had been done very poorly and actually created a fire hazard. And that's because my home inspector didn't crawl up into the attic and look around. Most home inspectors don't. And I think about that example when I think about us doing cultural diligence work is, you know, we're not going to be able to get everywhere and look at everything, But maybe we need to pay a little bit more attention to some areas so that we can extract the real value out of the deal. And that's one of those areas is culture. And I think it needs to get more attention than it does because we run the risk
1: of losing deal value. Yeah, I absolutely can connect with that. As you know, we've been conducting research based on insights and uh, last half of last year. Uh, We ended up doing research on culture and uh, one of the areas that most of the companies came back with is their struggle to quantify culture and how to manage it. Everybody recognizes the need to address culture. Uh, Everybody recognizes that there is culture that plays a role, but the how of doing it is where they struggle. Continuing on that theme, I know you've written a book on culture, you know, and that's probably one of its kind. Tell me more about your book. Sure. So we took a couple of uh, years, really, to put together some
2: thoughts around how culture works. I worked with a gentleman named Brendan McElroy, who started off as an intern working on this project with me and interviewed a bunch of HRM&A practitioners and some integration leads, and then did some validation work afterwards. And what we really found as we were talking to folks is that culture is, is a big problem, right? It's a right. um, you know, not just the, the deal effects of doing culture well versus dealing poorly, but I mean, the size of what does culture mean? It's it's too much for most organizations to wrap their arms around. Right. So in the spirit of really drilling into what are those key, key things that'll make a, a difference in integration, we came up with five key drivers of culture clash. And then in the book, you know, we talk about how you do some diligence to identify those areas, as well as um, some idiosyncratic things that come up in every deal and some ways to poke at what are the other cultural pitfalls that we might find out about as we work on this deal. Uh, And then there's a roadmap for folks that have never done this kind of thing before. There are some uh, sort of a menu of different options for everything from employee listening to change management and a roadmap for folks that are working on their first hundred days. But I recognize not everybody's going to be able to do everything in there. Sure. Um, But there's some ideas and some things that you can pull out and go, oh, I think
1: this will make a difference on this particular deal. Right, right. Uh, And I've been reading uh, your book. I say reading because I haven't finished it yet. Uh, but I've gone through your five drivers where the culture clashes and I would say that's now my favorite part of the book. These five key drivers are completely resonate with me. I think I've mentioned that I'm also close to getting my culture book finished and and it's good to see that there's resonance with what you've been talking about and the the things that we found. For our listeners and viewers, why don't we unpack this part of the chapter, not not other chapters, let them go and buy the book and read (laughs) for themselves, but this part of it, the elements of five cultural dashes, what are those? Sure thing, so I'll list them off and then we can go back and, and
2: talk about any of them that uh, that seem particularly relevant today. Sure. These are not necessarily in order, but these are our top five lists. So the very first one that we came up with is decision-making. So right. how do decisions get made? Who has the power to choose what happens at different uh, different points in the organization? is there going to be debate or discussion, or is it whoever makes the decision at the top gets to decide? What are the levels of risk tolerance? Uh, are we bringing data to the decisions more than emotion to the decisions? And mm-hmm. I should say, before we go on too much, there aren't really right or wrong answers. Now, I, I personally have preferences about how I work, um, but my preferences aren't everybody's preferences. And so we're not making any kind of judgment about Uh, how organizations operate. We're simply calling out that there will be differences and being aware of those differences can make a difference in the level of cultural integration and, and really the quality of it so that that deal value can be driven faster because the organization will stabilize sooner. Correct. So the next one after that is team collaboration. And so, when I think about collaboration, I look at whether roles and responsibilities are clearly defined, or if people shift around a lot and wear a lot of different hats in the organization. Um, do they value deep knowledge versus specialization? Um, are there structured opportunities for employees to bond? You'll see in some organizations, you know, uh, they'll do a frequent lunch, for example. Other organizations will do an annual picnic, and the Wait. difference between meeting once a week and once a year. You know, well, that, that talks to how your teams collaborate. Uh, how much trust is there? How is conflict handled? And how are resources allocated? So we really want to look at how these teams work together to get things done. The right. third area is operational expectations. And it means different things, right? right. So uh, the way I think about it is you get some leaders that operationally, they want the old slow and steady wins the race. Other leaders are like, hey, you, you know, if you're going to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. So those are two different ways of operating. And and if you've got a leader who's a break a few eggs guy that's been acquired by somebody who's a slow and steady wins the race type of personality, they're probably going to need to come to how they really want to work together.
1: Right.
2: Communication styles. This is one that almost always comes up when we talk. And I think you actually said the culture tends to be about more than just how we communicate and, and how we do that work together. Um whether or not the leaders openly share their decision-making or if they're only going to provide outcomes, um, whether they prefer formal messaging um, or informal vehicles like Slack or the water cooler conversation. Um, What's the level of focus on the customers versus the organization? Is more communication going out than coming in? Are they fairly well balanced? And then how important are interpersonal communication skills? And Right. I call this the, um, the sort of talented jerk paradox where some organizations will tell you communication is really important. And then they'll put somebody who's, you know, really talented and just not that great with people in charge. And right. that creates an interesting communication
1: culture in that group. I, I love that example because I've seen it so many times, especially with mid midsize companies. People make an assumption that if you're good at corporate communication, that would place you by default to be a good communications person for a transformation. There are two different things, but corporate communication and transformation communication may not necessarily work for the same person. That's that's a really good one. Um, They they are different skills. The fifth area that
2: we identified were uh, in a a realm that I call organizational self-concept. And so these can be things like what's the purpose of the organization and how well do people align with it? Uh, is it a legacy company, meaning you know we've always done it this way and we want to keep that legacy going strong versus a company that you know changes things every few minutes as new ideas come up. Um, who's responsible for growing and developing people? What's the level of diversity, equity and inclusion or other ESG initiatives between the two companies? So all of these go into how the company sees itself. And uh, an example that I use for this is uh, the number of companies that I've seen their mission statements, and they all have something like have fun in the mission <laughs> statement, or as one of their values. Yeah. And the example that I always use, my brother is, uh, my baby brother is this really fit guy. He was in the army for 20 some years. His idea of having fun is strapping everything that he needs to live for a week and a half on his back, walking into the woods and hoping he doesn't die. Right. And uh, (laughs) that is his idea of fun. That is not my idea of fun. My idea of fun has a little bit more to do with sitting around with a bunch of my friends with, uh, uh, you know, just just having a good time, throwing a party at the house, doing a barbecue. You know, so we have very different ways of having fun and understanding how that really works between two organizations uh, when any of their value statements are made, can be really critical to understanding how that organization really sees itself and how we're going to end up breaking that organization when we force it to see itself differently.
1: Right. And the last one, which is the organizational self-concept. I think it's so important because this reminds me, a few years back, I was advising uh, a company on their their integration, and I was looking at the statement and uh, the mission statement, and you know, employee centricity, customer centricity, uh, you know, fun place, all of the standards, feel good statements were all there. And I'm like, how do you prioritize? Because literally, if you're running a business, the main reason why you're running a business is because you've got something of value to offer to somebody else, right. the client who wants that value, and you get money in exchange, right? So that's your revenue. The very purpose of a business is to offer that value and make revenue in return. Employee centricity probably comes to be second or third or whatever it is, right? But it cannot just be employee centric because then the purpose of the business gets lost. Now, what I'm not saying is employees are not important or culture is not important. What I'm saying is that the cultural importance or the people importance will make sense when it's aligned to the ultimate objectives of the business, right?
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And another example I would share is over the last few years, uh, especially during the COVID time, this was all about wellness and about uh, you know well-being and mental health and you know balancing work-life balance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Come out of the COVID, the first couple of months of 2023, so many redundancies, so many layoffs, right? What happened to those? All those well-meaning, well-intended, you know, well-being initiatives, you know, you're saying, "Oh, by the way, we care about you as employees." And guess what? When tough time comes, he's like, "Oh, you know, what? I have to make decisions," and all of this well-being goes out of the window. So, uh, yeah. I get that. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's it's definitely a tough time. You know, I like to look at it as a, really a symbiotic relationship. Right? There's right. the needs of the employee. There's the needs of the organization. And to the extent possible, it's, you know those should be aligned because the organization can't do what it needs to do without its people. You, right. know, you have to have people to sell, you have to have people to develop the things that are being sold, and you have to have people to support those people in the business. And uh, you know, hopefully everybody's on the same page. That's the difference between really a high-performing organization and an organization that's not. Uh, but you're right. If those folks aren't aligned in such a way that the organization is is making money, you know, if, if, if that company can't meet payroll, then those folks can't get paid and take care of their family. So it, it really does have to be symbiotic where everybody wins.
1: Correct. Correct. And the other thing which I've seen uh, when it comes to culture is culture often is dealt in isolation, right? So people would go and look at uh, employee surveys, you know, what were the employee survey results from the past? Show me your latest results. What do you get from there? You know, And again, I'll use the analogy of your version of having fun and my version of having fun may be very different. So when you say, when you ask an employee is, do you get the right level of career opportunities for you to grow? You know It doesn't matter what company you are. There will always be people who will say, yes, I do get opportunities to grow. And there will be people who will say, no, I don't. You know, so it's, yeah. you know, so the other thing, of course, is, um, when people go for due diligence and they say they have dinners or they have some time with the uh, with some of the leaders of uh, the acquiring or the the target company, and if there is a common chemistry, it's like, hey, you know what? I can actually work with that guy. And I call it the table manner due diligence uh, on cultures that gets done. Right. So, what's your view on what are some of the better ways of getting? Cultural assessments done. Sure. So I think, like all due
2: diligence, on, cultural diligence is a is a, it's a phased process. Right. So even with financial diligence, which uh, you know, i I've been around a lot. I've not done it myself, but you know, we ask for the financial statements. We ask for some of the backing information, and then depending on what we find, we'll ask additional questions. Right. And so cultural diligence is very similar. At the beginning of the process, we're going to see what's public. We might see the SIM, um, you know, or some other seller provided documents, and that's it. I've learned a lot about companies' cultures by going out and simply uh, doing web searches of their founders, if it's a founder-driven brand, um, of the organization's glass door, their Yelp reviews. Um, If it's a publicly traded company, they will have filings out. Um, A lot of organizations will have press releases. So there's a lot of public information out there that we can look at at first, and and I think that's helpful. Then once the deal's announced and we can start getting access to the employees, we can ask that that next level down. So, you know, it's this funnel where we start with the public information. We can ask some questions of the seller, recognizing to your point that we're talking with people uh, differently situated in the organization than probably the employees who are going to be doing the work that uh, drives a lot of the day-to-day value in the organization. And then finally, we can get into individual employee level feedback, whether that's through focus groups or through surveys. So, um, you know, I think it's important to understand that that's a lot of why we get the culture wonky at the beginning is that we're only doing a really broad stroke. Right. You know, Enervon, one thing that um, that I'll add to that is is there are three ways that I do think we should look at culture as we're going through the diligence. You know, we should look at it from the point of view of synergies. So what are we doing in the deal with our synergy targets? And, you know, one example from from my career is we had a firm that uh, was doing really well when we purchased them. Um, The deal sponsor wanted only the technicians in this particular deal and wanted to fire everybody else. And I warned him, you know, hey, we did some cultural assessment. That may not be the best way to handle this group. Um, you know, let's let's try to redeploy some of their back office and salespeople so that um, this culture, which is this all for one, one for all, you know, everybody ate lunch together in the lunchroom every day. There was really no division between the technicians and the product development folks and the marketing team. It was all one big group. But we went in and we uh, had, uh, we against what the cultural assessment would say we should do, basically created haves and have-nots. Right. And all of these technicians that that sponsor wanted to have on, the, those synergies he was going to have by being able to bring that talent in went away because those people quit. We they saw how we treated their coworkers and they said we're out of here. So we really right. ignored, um, you know, the importance of that 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 synergy, keeping those people on to the deal by ignoring what was going on with their coworkers. Um, you know, other things I think we've got to look at are the secret sauce and then, you know, what I call the the sacred cows, that third S. Right. And this is the things that we hear about Enervon, where it's like, oh, well, you know, you took the tea service away. Well, yes. tea service shouldn't be that big a deal, but you know, I've been with companies where everybody getting free lunch and free soda was part of what they saw as their value for working 55, 60 hour weeks you come in, you pull that out and, you know, sure it's expensive when you look at it, you know, what's the cost of free pop for everybody for a year. But when everybody suddenly goes from working 55, 60 hour weeks to 40, because they don't feel like they're being appreciated. And that can of soda was the thing that said, Hey, we appreciate you. And it goes away. All of a sudden you lose value in that deal
1: as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, And I call them irritants, you know, because literally, um, you know, some of the worst cultural mismatches I've seen have always started from one of these irritants, you know, it's the favorite parking spot, you know, it, yes. it, it is it is my place, uh, my seat, it is, I had a corner office, and now I'm sitting in the middle of the office without any natural light. So uh, these irritants usually, and in, in fact, this was one of the questions we put in our research, right? How big do these irritants play a role when it comes to cultural animosity? Yeah, you know, I I, I think that uh, you and I
2: both love our people watching. So I'm sure the stories <laughs> of these irritants, we could probably uh, do the whole next season of your podcast. <laughs> right.
1: One of the functions that looked up to manage culture is often HR, right? And in fact, in many companies, they have been rechristened as people and culture department. And yet I find that while they have been able to make progress on, on when it comes to people's people side of things, but not so much in culture, what's preventing it? Yeah, you know, I, I have the opinion that culture is
2: too important to leave to the HR department. Right. Uh, you know, and, and not to denigrate the work that I do or, or the great work that a lot of my colleagues do in the HR department, but if culture really is about how things get done, you can't leave that to one department. Exactly. And you certainly can't leave it to the department that often is the last one to have a full seat at the table at startups. True, You know, you usually bring in a finance leader, you bring in an operations leader, you bring in a sales and marketing leader long before most organizations bring in an HR leader. So, you know, you, you put your junior most person responsible for the thing that's probably the most important to your success uh, at most startups. And it's a little counterintuitive. So, um, I really think that culture can't just be the responsibility of HR. Right. We certainly have an advisory role. We have a role of expertise, but it um, it, it can't be our responsibility to drive a great culture. Um, you know, the other thing that I will say, Anurban, is that most culture, the way that it shows up as companies uh, grow larger is in the policies. Right. And, a lot of times those policies that dictate how people get work done in the organization. So back to our definition of culture are usually driven by multiple functions and can quite often be disjointed as organizations jockey for priority. Um, So I really do think culture has to be owned either by uh, the entire executive committee of an organization because your financial controls will inform your culture. Uh, The way that you do things like, um, uh, your marketing and your outreach well that that says something about your culture your brand and your culture are often mirrors of one another right uh, so there are just so many other players that to drop it in hr's lap and say hey you go figure it out is probably not going to be very successful it, it really does have to be a team effort and it does have to start at the top
1: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely agreed mm-hmm with the changes that are taking place in the world of MA, you know uh, people like us who've been involved in the last century where a lot of stuff was still done asset focused uh, you know it was acquisition of assets but now in the third decade of the 21st century uh, there's a lot more focus on ip intellectual property knowledge centric yeah. service centric you know people centric organizations how do you see the culture evolving going into the future
2: yeah well, I, I would love to give you a pie in the sky answer that says we're going to start seeing financial models that include some of the soft stuff in it. But um, uh, I, I think that that's likely to be a slow evolution. I think sure. that'll take time. That'd be a pretty significant state change. But I think in the interim, we'll be moving towards an earlier recognition of the value of, of all of the people elements in a deal, including the culture elements. Great. Uh, you yeah. know, I like to look at it as a team sport. You know, I, I often compare buying a company to buying a house when I'm talking with folks new to M&A. And the corp dev team is quite often those real estate agents, right? They're gonna help you find the perfect house. Right. Um, but once the keys are handed, you know, the, at least in my world, when my real estate agent sells me the house and hands me the keys, they very, very seldom come back and say, hey, how's the remodel coming along? Correct. You know? um, and so now that has to be handed off to a general contractor. I'm remodeling the house that I just bought right now. So this is near and dear to my heart um, since right. I I will uh, come home from this trip and I'll hopefully have the last bathroom put back together. <laughs>
1: um,
2: but, but it's not my realtor doing that work, right? It's a general contractor and she's very much like the integration lead. Right. And I think that there will come a time when we're starting to provide more seamless transition between the folks that'll be doing the deals and the folks that'll be extracting value of the deals. And um, you know the thing, Enervon, is that it's going to require more time and effort up front. But right. I don't know with our busyness that we have right now um, in in a lot of companies that that'll be quick to happen. I think it'll sure. be a slower evolution, but I, I do think that's the direction we're headed
1: right right now i i i agree with you it's probably going to be a slower a slower process unless we have a black swan moment and then yeah. everything gets accelerated again because literally who who knew about covid but covid came right. and we started looking at different the same thing i personally believe that the way let's say things like chat gpt has come in right it's revolutionizing the way we do things um uh, the next few years, I expect of quite a few more of these things coming our way, and that will probably change the way we look at things. So yeah.
2: I do hope whatever comes up out there, you know, whether it's uh, using AI, I've seen AI used for culture assessment. It was actually a really fascinating look or you know whether it's starting to use some of it for the integration work. I've, I've seen some really great work done around chat with right. just things like automating employee faqs there's there's some great great work being done in that area um i hope that uh, that whatever comes up and whatever exogenous shock is a little more gentle than COVID was <laughs> right yeah <laughs> but
1: true, as, true. yeah
2: as we work through that technology intervon i i really think we have the opportunity to say what that that's going to look like to your yeah. point about the business needs to have a product to sell yeah. um I really hope that as our deal makers out there look at what does drive value in the deal, you know we're now seeing it um, to, to your point about the the shift to IP. Yeah. we're now seeing a, a much broader focus than just what's the value of this asset. So I do think it will drive a different way of looking at things and maybe the AI, at least hopefully will help accelerate and make some of this more manageable because i I can't go through a whole data room and look at, you know thousands of pages and draw conclusions but right. you know hey if the AI can help us do that and accelerate the importance of, of looking at people I'm all for it
1: yeah yeah no, absolutely absolutely I probably have a few rapid-fire sure. questions if you're up for it yes sir what is the nastiest thing that you've seen in MA related to people and culture
2: oh my goodness Boy, that is that is a hard one. I I would say that the hardest thing to watch is when we get leaders who don't account for the individuals in the deal. Um, Right. I've I've not. Fortunately, I've not worked with a lot of leaders like this, but I've worked with a few where the uh, the the folks being acquired were really seen as very fungible, like numbers on a spreadsheet. And I know that's easy to do when you get into large transactions with thousands of people. but it is really hard to watch folks who rely on these jobs to feed their families, to, to take care of the people that they love being reduced to numbers. And I right. find that that doesn't help with great decision making. So um, with those leaders, you know, fortunately, we we're able to kind of rally and drive a little bit more empathy in the process. Um, but that's probably the hardest thing to watch when it comes to to people.
1: Right. What is one of your most memorable things that you saw in an integration? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So at the same time as I was running the transaction I told you about earlier, where we created haves and have-nots with the technicians, I was working on another deal, another tech company, roughly the same size. And the contrast was really quite telling. Um, so where with the the deal that I shared about earlier, we had a deal sponsor who you know only wanted the technicians sort of went in like a bull in a China shop, ignoring the advice to mind the culture. On this other deal that we were doing at the same time, uh, we listened to the founder of that organization, brought him along, shared what the upfront integration model was going to look like and had a multi-year plan. And then that founder could go uh, have those conversations with his team and really act as that, that transitional leader that we really needed in the deal. And what really struck me about this, Annervon, is that with that particular deal, that company was distressed. They were having some financial challenges. Sure. Um, all of the folks thought that their stock options were going to be worth you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. But it turned out that they were worth nothing. They were underwater because the company had failed to secure market share. Right. Because of the way that founder went out and very humbly and transparently said, this is what's going on we're not gonna be able to meet payroll in a couple of weeks. Here were our options, right? Get another round of funding or or uh, sell. And sure. he walked the team through exactly what that was going to look like in such a uh, compassionate way, in a clear way, in a way that really gave direction and aligned with our intent as a buyer. Um, I still get get chills a little bit thinking about just what a fantastic leader that gentleman was. Uh, taking his team through what is a very, very difficult change. The retention was high. That business integrated incredibly well. The acquirer started to realize the market share gains that they wanted from bringing those technologists in to accelerate their product roadmap. Um, I think it was probably one of the best deals I've ever seen.
1: Awesome. Awesome. That's really good and heartwarming to hear about that story as well. Um, Now, we obviously are going to put a link to your book uh, are there other favorite business books that you would like to share with our audience?
2: Uh, sure. So I am a really big fan. I tend to do uh, not as much reading as I would like, but um, <laughs> the one that I just read was by uh, Laura Queen, who... Oh, yes. Uh, really does Yes. Yep. That's the one. So... Laura does a really good job in people economics of starting to talk about the need for a new model of valuing people. And then um, there is a, a book that Laura quotes in her put called, uh, it's, it's ROI. I believe it's return on individual. right? Um, uh, the new ROI, return on individuals. And I'm about halfway through that one right now. And I'm finding both of those to just be what I call a brain stretcher, right? It's a new way of wrapping my head around something. And I'm hopeful, whether it's their ideas or somebody else's, I'm really hopeful that we start to see the idea of quantifying the value of human capital differently start to show up.
1: Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And in in fact, we're trying to get Laura as uh, uh, one of our guests in one of our upcoming episodes, uh, I've been speaking with her, so hopefully she'll, she'll join in. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the way she's described uh, the people part, the human capital, the definitions, the conventional definition. In fact, uh, the latest Harvard Business Review uh, actually is carrying an article where it says US Gap still sees people as investments, whereas U- IFRS... Uh, you could potentially see people as human capital. So there's also that difference in accounting, and that makes it very difficult to invest in your people, you know, because yeah. that, that's all cost and it just goes up. So, but, but good to know, good to know. And one last question. If you were to look back at your younger self, you know, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years back, right? And if you were to advise him on a career in MA what would you tell him? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Well, uh, so I kind
2: of like where things ended up in my career. So I probably say, uh, keep listening to the people that you listen to and take on the mentors that you took on. Um, The only other thing that I would probably say is learn to listen to the language of the business a little bit sooner. you know, when it comes to influencing our business leaders and those people who really have the power to make a difference for those acquired employees, you know, being able to help them understand that, that we're not asking for certain things to be done around cultural integration just because it's the HR thing to do. We're actually asking for those things because it will drive business results. Correct. And being able to communicate that more clearly earlier on, I think would have made a bigger difference for a lot more people.
1: Oh, yeah. That's actually a very, very good call out because literally, especially people who who operate in support organizations kind of struggle to have that commercial acumen, commercial uh, understanding. and, and, And you're so right, so spot on. And I think what better way to wrap up our session today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom. And of course, also parts of your book. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have Clint with us today thank you.
2: Great, thank you and thanks for having me.
0: Did you like today's content? If yes, then don't forget to hit the like button. If you heard something interesting, then don't forget to share it with your network and friends. And last but not least, please support us on this journey to spread awareness on topics related to m and integration by subscribing to our channel. That's all for now. Stay healthy and see you next time.
1: And if you like this session, I'm sure you'll also like our latest new tool. It is a quick assessment scorecard to assess the robustness of your culture integration capabilities in M&A. It just takes less than five minutes to answer. It is for free and you get instantaneous assessment. So visit culturema.scoreapp.com and find out for yourself. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. This show was sponsored by Fifth Chrome, a business strategy advisor in a training company specializing in M&A, post-merger integration, and business strategy.